Oh, hey, it's so nice to be back. <laughs> that didn't sound like it no, was. No, it's so nice really? because the radiators are on. Yes, they are. Oh, my radiators are on. I'll tell you what's also great is that the our main podcast, because obviously the Q&A podcast came out earlier in the week, but the main podcast comes out on a Friday, and I'm always happy with the podcast I get on a Friday because it's sort of like, here we go, it's the weekend. Oh, right. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously yours with Mark, the movie podcast, that comes out on a Friday as well. So this is uh, uh, Books of the Year in association with our friends at WH Smith. And on the subject of heating, Sandra Beer says, I'm awarding five stars and a massive thumbs up to the Books of the Year podcast, particularly as it now includes seasonal chat about heating, central heating and Economy 7. Economy 7. I sadly thought those days were over, but I'm glad they're back. So your heating is on now. It is now on, yes. It's been on for about a week. But it's really mild. Uh, it is, yes. Yeah. So I think I... Well, I don't think I'm going to be able to go back and turn I it off. you need to turn it off I, I'm not sure that would go down quite so well. I think my family are now used to having heat bursting out at 8am uh, in the morning. Um, Rachel uh, tweeted us to say, does Matt get his views about heating on dates from Moonfleet, a book set in 1757? And she sent us a picture of said book. Um, at last, the light began began to fail and I was nothing loath to leave off reading for several reasons as first the parlour was a chilly room with horsehair chairs and sofa and only a coloured paper screen in the grate for my aunt did not allow a fire till the 1st of November which is quite right her, her aunt is absolutely right you do not put the heating on until well until the clocks go back it shows that your views basically come from the 18th they century do. yes quite and haven't right. been updated yes. since well Paul in Saltdean Firstly, thanks for reading out my previous email. To rediscover Roddy the Roadman after all these years is simply amazing. Secondly, reading one of your recommendations, Treachery of Spies, is awesome. Finally, to the crux of my email, listening to today's podcast and I hear the mention of merchandise. I can certainly help you on the clothing side of things and more than happy to send a sample top for the pair of Ooh. you. What, one top between us? Yes, that's fine, yeah. Top, what, imagine. What? Well, what's that going to be? Well, it's, well, obviously we'll need a large... Um, and um, I, I prefer a sweatshirt because it's you know. What do you want on it? Uh, is... Well, oh, well, some some kind of logo, oh, book. obviously. My Maybe face. with our, with the microphone. Yes. Thing. Well, that, well, the logo, yeah. Not that, your face. My face. Or your mum's face. <laughs> your mum's face. Please advise suitable address to send to and the relevant sizes. I'll get a little gift to you in the post. Should we give out the producer's home phone? Yes, home let's a home phone number. Why not on the on the podcast? I yeah, mean, we don't ring have an address. Any time. Do we? we don't have an address. Yeah, if you contact us via email, maybe that's the best thing. What, what's to do. the email address again? Because I've forgotten. Books of the year at yahoo.com. Yahoo.com. <laughs> this is bullying. <laughs> bullying in the workplace. We could consider running a basic online shop for you if interested. It could be a way of generating income. But We're let's start with that. getting you to kit it out. Looking forward to hearing from you. Yes. Well, I want to get kitted out. Thank you, uh, Greg Hughes uh, contacted us via email. Hi, both. Thank you for your lovely podcast. I thoroughly enjoy listening while driving up and down the country. A few thoughts I've had whilst listening. First book I bought and a start to read to my kids was Brendan Chase by Dennis Watkins Pitchford. What an amazing book. I loved it so much. Author that I'd like to hear on your podcast, Damien Boyd. I love his books and his knowledge of Somerset. Guess where I live. Uh, and an author to have as a guest, 
Um, Greg says, well, brace yourselves. It's Richard Herring and his questions book, mainly because I'd love uh, to listen to you guys chatting. I listen to Richard Herring's podcast. Uh, he has a book called Emergency Questions, which are basically questions that you would ask people when conversation starts to get a little bit faint. Okay, and good. it's, would you rather have a hand made out of ham or an armpit that uh, dispensed sun cream? So, Simon Mayer, would you rather have a hand made yeah. out of ham or a, an armpit that dispensed sun cream? Uh, I think an armpit with sun cream. Really? Yes, I think so. You'd use that, would you? Yes, I think well, I would. Because I, I, the hand, as I understand it, if you ate a bit of your hand, it would grow back. So you'd have like this, like constantly have ham okay. to hand. No, not really. Literally. I don't really fancy that. No? Okay, so it's the armpit. Child three used to come up you used to be sitting there having your breakfast yeah and he would say things like um if you had the choice of not having lived at all or having lived for a second what would you choose so i go well i don't know i suppose i'd choose living for a second yes and he'd say but what if that second you were you were in agony for one second of for the agony. one second of your life, you'd be in agony. I say, okay, well, <laughs> I guess like he's five. Okay, uh, shall I not live at all? I'll, I'll, I'll up for that. I mean, it's only one second, you know. Yeah, but it's just I'd one rather, second of agony. If you had to choose, yeah. If I had to choose between those, I'd go for the one second of agony. Would you? Yeah, because at least you've lived, haven't you? Yeah, but so it's you've not lived. much of a life. I've lived. It was, you know, it wasn't quite what I was hoping for, no, but, you know, on one balance. second of agony. It was a, <laughs> it was a bit disappointing. Anyway, you could pass that on to Richard <laughs> Yes, I, we, we will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Cat Day, Matt and Simon, love the podcast. The most recent episode about the tattooist of Auschwitz was amazing. I've been telling everyone. I wanted to ask if you might mention the 24 Stories anthology published on the anniversary of the Grenfell Tower disaster to raise money uh, to support the PTSD-related needs of Grenfell survivors. Kathy Burke headed the project. It features 12 stories by established authors and 12 by less-known writers, one of whom is um, me. So, anyway, this is one of those Unbound books, so if you look for it um, at the Unbound website, uh, you'll find it there. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much, yeah. for getting in touch. Dr Cat Day. Yes. Uh, she says she wasn't at med school with Dr Goodluck. Dr Goodluck, who's not been back in contact. Not only nor is, has no. uh, the other guy who was, uh, who was offering us, us money. $1.5 million. Where's my money? Well, he's not getting another mention until we see that no. check. And it's difficult because I've already gone out and spent my share. Oh, really? And I've <laughs> got nothing coming gone. in. <laughs> anyway, OK. Stand by for Levison Wood and... Anna Chazinski and Dan Schreiber coming up for Books of the Year. So uh, this is Books of the Year. So what a thrill it is to have a book that's called The Book of the Year. I mean, this is really... It's a great booking. It is. (laughs) It's a great booking. It's very entertaining. But that's why we thought it would be great. So on Simon Mayer's Books of the Year, here it is. It's The Book of the Year. Uh, from the people who brought you No Such Thing as a Fish, represented here by Anna Chazinski and Dan Schreiber. Anna and Dan, hello. Hello. Hi there. Uh, so it's a good title, by the way. We did it just to get on your show, basically. Well, well it clearly worked. And it says, The Book of the Year 2018, The, de- the Definitive Guide to the World's Weirdest News. Uh, Levison Wood is with us. His book is Arabia, A Journey Through the Heart of the Middle East. Hello, Levison. How are you? Very well, thank you. Next time you're off on one of your journeys, what you need is a little uh, compendium of 
entertaining facts. I know. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take this away and read. To, uh, <laughs> to impress. Matt, let's uh, describe both covers. Please. Yes. OK, so let's start with Leveson's, which is uh, mainly white. And then in the centre, you've got this sort of picture, which is a melange of loads of things that you that you associate with uh, Arabia. So there's a mosque, there's a golden uh, dome, there's minarets, but there's also tanks and there's camels and there's ancient ruins. And Arabia is picked out in gold at the top with Leveson Wood's name at the bottom. And Book of the Year is the Book of the Year. And it's mainly blue background with loads of little uh, illustrations there that will refer to facts within. So you've got Donald Trump, a rhinoceros, the World Cup, Megan, and then the book of the year in gold, uh, your definitive guide to the world's weirdest news. Just And just to explain, for people who haven't heard your podcast, yeah. this is it's part of the QI empire, but just to explain where it all sits and how it all hangs together. Yeah, well, we... Five years ago, um, we were all sitting in the office working as QI elves, so the people behind the questions and facts on the TV show. And uh, it was while we were in the office, I, I actually had just rejoined QI. I'd been away for a few years, and my job was to come up with new ideas. And I kept noticing that when we're off-season for QI, because it's not a show that's you know on every week... Um, all these facts go to waste. You have these conversations in the office and the nature of finding and loving facts is you can't help but tell someone the fact. And as soon as you told someone, if I said something to Anna, Anna would go, oh, but did you know? And we just thought, okay, let's stop wasting all these facts. Let's, let's see if we can get it down as a show. And that's how No Such Thing as a Fish was born. Yeah, and it's basically, so there's four of us in it, um, four of the elves, and every week we just bring to the table the most interesting, weird or mad thing that we've discovered that week, and we tell each other what our headline facts are each week, so we can sort of research around each other's areas, and then we just talk about it Yeah. Our. So it's a genuine conversation because we hide the facts from each other um, and uh, and that seems to give the, the fun feeling of the show because you don't know what's coming up next. Um, so it's not, it's not scripted in any way. And then what happened is we got offered a BBC Two TV show, which was a topical version. So it was called No Such Thing as the News. And we did that for two series. And when that finished, we again looked at the kind of stuff we were finding because we thought, you know, when we do the podcast, all the facts are from all of time. We can pick a, a fact about the Big Bang all the way through to what happened yesterday. And we realised that in the space of 12 months, incredible things happen. Great leaps are made in science. Extraordinary adventures happen. Politically, the world is, you know, there's just so many little details going on. And we thought, OK, why don't we try and bottle that into one volume, a tome, kind of like a book you'd get as a kid, sort of like Guinness World Records or something, but optimistic, interesting and stuff you will not know about the year that just happened. Yeah, that's the important thing so it's not like an overview of all the stuff that you will have read already, a summary of the year it's kind of, we're looking for the weird sideways angle or, you know, the Singapore summit happened, but did you know that Kim Jong-un brought his own personal toilet with him or, you know, the weird funny things that can cheer you up in, you know what is sometimes unrelentingly miserable headlines. And what's great about that is it's so interesting that, you know, why did he bring his own toilet? And you start looking into it and you realise that um, dictators' feces or any leader's feces are very important because if you got your hands on it, you would be able to tell what their diet is. You'd be able to tell so much from, from that one thing. So there's protection over the stools of these great leaders because there's too much information. It's top so, secret. Because yeah, I, I read that bit and I, do any other world leaders, is it just him that decides to keep his own... Stuff. We, we found out when reading into it, and I've got a hazy memory of, memory of this, that someone else had done it. I think it might have been um, Mao or a Chinese leader has done it in the past. And it was actually justified because it turned out that America was checking up on stool samples. So, you know, to be on the safe side, we should all be doing it. 
<laughs> you're right. It is. It is optimistic, and if you find the news pretty unrelentingly grim this you won't find anything here in here that's grim it's all it's all very entertaining stuff and my favorite fact is actually i wasn't going to tell you what my favorite fact was because it's actually the first one in the book and then you'd think we've well, only read the first page <laughs> so i'm actually going to say that but um that my favorite one is the heavy metal one did you read the heavy metal uh, one okay go on that Walmart refused to sell a heavy metal album oh, yeah. by a Christian band because it was too satanic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the, the band Striper, who released their 17th... Is it OK if I read from your book? Please. Their 17th Christian rock album, God Damn Evil, three words, with tracks like Take It to the Cross and The Devil Doesn't Live Here. The album's title expresses the hope that God condemns all wickedness. Walmart, however, didn't see it that way and refused to stock the record. Which is great. And then you talk about Greek metal band Rotting Christ, who admittedly don't have the same pious credentials, and they were arrested in Georgia on terrorism charges <laughs> after locals who objected to their name claimed to the authorities that they were Satanists. They're, well, yeah. You I like mean, your rock. Have you, I do. Have you heard of either of those I've, bands? I've not. My fa- and this, is, this is great because you're absolutely right that when you have a little fact, you are desperate to tell people. So my little fact is uh, related to metal. And I'm sure you know this already, but Van Halen, uh, 80s rock band Van Halen, uh, famously had this thing on their rider where they said, we do not, we will not eat blue M&Ms. And if we see any blue, you know this fact already, if we see any blue M&Ms in the bowl when we come into our dressing room, we are walking out. And the reason, everyone always thinks that's because they're divas and they can deal with blue M&Ms. The real reason is that in the 80s, their live act was, it was, there were so many health and safety concerns because it was such a sophisticated act that they had a manual that thick uh, for every uh, venue to to be able to to make sure every i's been dotted and, and t crossed, and hidden with and to make sure that the those promoters followed every single step, hidden within that would be a we do not eat blue M and M's. So when they got to a new venue, all they had to do was go to the dressing room, and if they found a bowl that had blue M and M's in it, they knew that the promoter hadn't looked through the rest of their manual. Yeah. That, that sounds like a diva favorite. was caught out and had to retrospectively. Yes. Yeah, no, no, uh, David Lee I Roth. Think, I think that was Matt's audition to get a yes, role as yes, a QIL. Please. <laughs> it's an amazing fact, though, isn't it? Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was a safety concern, and they yeah. would know instantly. It's a, a little hidden, yeah. And it's good that you clarify, because it's often repeated just as they demanded no blue M&M. So yeah. people go away from that fact thinking, God, what? yeah, what a bunch of divas. Yeah. But it wasn't that. So, I, I feel I should ask you about a fact that is in your book, and this is the this is the one I I really liked, which is how Derek Beatty could get you or help you get divorced in China, which is sort of a bit of a tangent in that you can get divorced in China by yep. do, doing a quiz show that's basically Mister Mister and Mrs. It, it appears to me. Yeah, you yeah. have to do a quiz now to so they they want people to make sure that they really want to have a divorce. So when they apply for the divorce, they get a quizzed on each yep. other, and actually if they're compatible. By the results of the quiz, they should re, you know, rethink the whole thing. It's like you, you, on paper, you're fantastic. Yeah, you've got a ninety. It's a quiz you have to fail. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favourite colour? I've no idea what her favourite colour is. <laughs> I love. I love the. By the way, the first thing in the book, which I wasn't going to mention first because it would just appear as though I'd only got to the first page <laughs> and given up, is the fact that American Airlines have banned emotional support insects. Yes. Oh yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, clearly that's. Lud- I mean, it's ludicrous. There's no one actually. Th- 
gets emotional support from a stick insect, do they? Well, people get emotional support from all kinds of places. But um, I think it's just, yeah, emotional support animals have really become a thing, haven't they? And people want to take them on board planes. And I think it was becoming a genuine hassle for airlines. And so they've got to cover all bases. And so they specify no insects. Sorry. Yeah. I have, a fr- I have a friend who managed to get her dog on a plane because she said it was an emotional support dog, which just, which just basically meant she would miss the dog. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's yeah. kind of... So maybe that's what American Airlines were after. My other favourite one is the, fa- is the, the world's slowest roller coaster. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Do you want to tell the story, Dad? Oh, this, this was in Japan. It's known as the world's slowest roller coaster. And it goes so slow that when it got stuck halfway up, the people on it didn't realise it had stopped. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't until some maintenance workers were banging on the back of it with some <laughs> spanners that they thought, hang on, something's gone wrong here. Oh, this is superb. Yeah. Oh, this is if we're not moving. <laughs> wow. I, lo- I used to um, work in France, so I really like the fact about uh, the woman who works in France who's sick to death of having to kiss everyone at the start of all meetings. Because that, I, obviously, I didn't have to kiss everyone, but I had to shake everyone's hand at the start of every meeting. And if someone new came in, they have to shake everyone's hand. And at the first time you do that, it's great. And now I'm quirking, it gets old very, very quickly. It's like, oh, not again. Yeah. Have I seen you already? Do I need to shake your hand again? Yeah. And surely a public health nightmare, all that kissing back and forth. Mm. But yeah, it was a mayor, wasn't it, who sent a message out to all of her staff, like 70 staff or something, saying, no more kissing, please. Yeah, because for her, it was it would took up most of her day. If you were a male mayor, you would be fine because it is just a quick handshake. But her, it's like four kisses on each side. And so she was faking the flu, so she would arrive to meetings late and yeah. and just be able to sit down at the table and yeah it was ruining her sort of day-to-day life in the office to to have to do it there's another really fun french fact in there which is in canada there was a waiter who was fired this year for being too rude but he's taken them to court challenging them saying he's not rude he's just french <laughs> and that's that's his defense which he is actually going to a tribunal to defend saying this I is this is how we were trained in france to be as waiters it's he it's, says it's cultural prejudice yeah, yeah. It's, it's racism Presum- presumably if, if when this is your job you spend the whole time with a pen in one hand or a notebook in the other and just you will see these facts everywhere I mean it's the kind of thing that someone might read out and then forget about it but you must just be compiling these things every single day yeah, they yeah. can't. They are everywhere. It's almost annoying that you can't switch off it because. So I went on a walk. I mean, this is kind of a gruesome one, but I was on a walk the other day and um, I was on a footpath, and there were a bunch of moles that were dead and hung up on a fence, and I was like, "What on earth is that?" And so I immediately looked that up as soon as I got home and found out that it's actually what mole catchers do when they have to catch moles on a massive farm because it takes too much time to always go back to the farmer and show they've caught another one, and they get paid by the mole, so they just put them there so the, the farmers can count them. But then you end up reading, you know, accidentally spending an hour reading about mole catching history and finding out that mole catchers 300 years ago were paid more than surgeons and were more highly valued. And you just, yeah, it's very distracting if you want to lead a normal life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so the book, we're going to, we'll come back to you for for one extra fact just before we finish. Okay, so if there's something that you're burning to tell us, uh, we'll finish with a. Uh, a couple of uh, entertainers. It is one of these books that if you, when you get it at Christmas, you'll go, hang on, here's a good one. And go, oh, okay. <laughs> so the book from our friends, uh, No Such Thing as a Fish, is called The Book of the Year 2018, and we'll hear from Levison Wood next. Levison Wood's book is Arabia, A Journey Through the Heart of the Middle East. There are 
loads of facts in this as well, Leveson, it has to be said, but not the kind of ones you might necessarily read out at a party. Possibly not. Um, so I, think, I think the title is the first place to start because you, you say later in the book there's actually no such thing as Arabia, so, and it's a controversial title. Yeah. So just ex- ex- explain what you've done here. So um, what I wanted to do was try and capture the essence of the Middle East and explore what it means in the modern age by going on an overland journey. And um, the only problem is, of course, is where does it start and finish? And, you know, the, the, the name itself, Arabia, is, is controversial. It's possibly outdated. I mean, there's lots of arguments here on both sides. Um, but it, it's also the ancient name for, for a region that is the heart of um, not only the Middle East, but the heart of, of current affairs really today in this, in this day and age and, and has been for, um, you know, this entire generation, you know, the Iraq war, what's happening today, um, ISIS. Uh, so I wanted to go and explore it by going on a, a journey, um, yeah, a circumnavigation of this peninsula and taking in everything from, you know, Iraq to Syria, Yemen. Um, Saudi Arabia, travelling at the mercy, kindness of locals and, and hopefully coming away with some sort of message of, of hope rather than focusing on the the negative aspects which which team, you know, seem to sort of take up most of modern news. You know, it is all negative. And so you know, it's trying to find the right balance. You know, I'm not glossing over anything and, and I do find myself on this journey going into some pretty you know, hairy situations. You know, I was there witnessing the the downfall of ISIS in Iraq, um, travelling through Yemen, um, you know, getting caught in protests in, in you know, in, in the West Bank and so on. But but really, it's about the people. It's about the human stories and, and the incredible people that, that I guess call this place home. Uh, is it 13 countries that you, that you travelled through? Yeah, that was as a result of a slight detour. I got thrown out of Yemen uh, for various reasons and, and had to take a dhow uh, across the Gulf of Aden and ended up in Somalia and uh, Djibouti, which added on a couple of countries. So um, you are uh, author, explorer, photographer. You're well-equipped. You have a military background so that you know this kind of trip. You've been on these kind of trips before. But was it something, I wonder if this part of the world had been a particular fascination for you? I mean, why did you pick on this area uh, particularly to travel on? Well, uh, this area, you know, the Middle East has been of particular fascination ever since probably 2003. So that year I was I was studying history at university and wanted to see for myself what, you know, the Middle East was all about. And it was, of course, the, uh, the Iraq invasion. Um, so myself and a friend, we actually, uh, we went to Egypt and Israel that summer and... Uh, due to Israel closing its borders after a suicide bombing, um, we ended up hitchhiking uh, through Jordan all the way to Baghdad. So we actually travelled around Iraq in the summer of 2003, um, which was, you know, fascinating to, to sort of be there as a, as a student um, and witnessing what was going on. And so ever since then, I've, I've, I've been returning to the region over the last 15 years or so um, in various guises. Um, I was there in 2014 at the sort of uh, as ISIS was gaining control and had just taken over Mosul, and I'd done very embeds with you know the Peshmerga and, and various militia groups in in Iraq um, I traveled through Syria before the Civil War so I, I saw this as an opportunity having done several overland journeys and, and written about them why not go to the most controversial area of all uh, and go and explore it you know at the the slowest pace you know traveling on whether it's on foot or on the back of a camel or you know in Iraq for example on, on the back of a battle tank um, and meet people that can tell tell me their story and, and tell the story of the Middle East through their eyes and you're after 
the stories of, in quotes, ordinary people. This isn't, you're not talking to military leaders, you're not talking to politicians, I you are talking purposely to... purposely avoid those sorts yeah. of people and, and, and go and speak to the, the guys at the ground level who can give me their opinions. I think the key to why I enjoyed this book so much is, number one, I, I, I was aware before I picked up the book that my knowledge of this part of the world was woefully short and weak i uh, even ge- geographically i couldn't have, have really placed places like amman and, and yemen on on a map so that's what i knew i was going to get from it but i was as i was reading it i was thinking why are you putting yourself through because you're putting yourself into really dangerous situations there was one point where you decide to go hitchhiking and i was like, oh my goodness he's going to go hitchhiking in probably one of the day most who's going to pick you up it's the most dangerous place in the world and you're going hitchhiking i'm going hitchhiking through the lakes and you're going hitchhiking through <laughs> iraq and but but as i was reading it, i realized what i am getting out of this is i'm i'm it's almost like um when you read um uh, jules verne's uh, around the world native days where Phileas Fogg is doing this for a bet but you follow that journey around the world because you're engaging with how he is engaging with other people and I and that's what I I, I took from this book was I, I was learning so much about a part of the world that I needed to know more about because of as, as you were saying just now you were meeting these sort of real people who were talking about very complex situations but explaining how it impacted directly on them there is someone I want to talk to you about um, who it felt to me was was, I, I didn't know this guy, and the reason, but I was a little bit confused because his name is also the name of someone far more famous, or more famous to me, and that's the explorer Richard Burton, mm. who I'd, I'd not heard of before, but sounds a fascinating individual and sounds like someone who was some, something of an inspiration for you when you were doing this. Absolutely. Richard Francis Burton, um, the, the explorer, not, not the film star, um, he... Was, you know, he, he was an explorer, he was a political officer, he was a linguist, he spoke something like 27 languages, um, a real intellectual, but also um, quite an oddity, especially in the, the heyday of the Victorian mentality, because he got stuck right in there. You know, he was the guy on the front line um, embedding himself in these tribes, in these cultures, learning all about them, their, their ways of life, um, because he was interested. He was, he was very curious, and, and he's been described as the first hippie. Um, because of the way that he he just went out there for, for you know two three years at a time, um, you know he he translated not only you know the tales of the Arabian Nights but also the Kama Sutra. Um, you know he he was a he was a real character. Went in search of the source of the Nile and uh, you know smuggled himself into places like Mecca and these forbidden cities. So um, you know a real inspiration to me. I mean you probably wouldn't get away with a lot of the stuff that he did these no. days, but at the time he was a real pioneer. I mean, there, there's a great part in the book when you're in a... I, I couldn't believe this when I read this bit. You're in Iraq and your uh, your guide is taking you towards where you think there's fighting and there are road signs pointing towards the front. So you would have a road sign, this way to the fighting! What? It's just ridiculous. Very, very surreal. I mean, not only road signs, literally sort of little arrow points. It was almost like directions to a festival. It was very bizarre. <laughs> how, how strange. But you would be in the middle of, of Iraq... And obviously, you would see the sort of war-torn areas, but it also you were you stood on the spot where it's thought Alexander the Great died, mm. and you know if you were to come up with let's have the most amazing holiday ever, that you know if you take obviously it's a big thing to take away, but if you were taking out all of the the conflicts that are going on in those areas. Goodness me, being able to go to these ancient cities, these ancient kingdoms, birthplace of civilization. 
Yeah, and then that's hopefully what you know comes out of this book. It's not just about current affairs, the conflict. It's it's about the history, the geography, and the amazing cultural legacy that comes from this region. And and for me, as a um, you know, as a bit of a historian, I I really wanted to go to the the five oldest cities in the world, and that's what this is about. It's going to Babylon, it's going to Eridu, it's going to Damascus, um, and looking at how this legacy has continued into the modern age. When you're trying to find and speak to ordinary people, how Difficult is it to speak to women? Well, in some countries like Iraq, you know, it's been so locked down for so long, very difficult. Other countries um, like Jordan, you meet the Bedou, the women um, are, are very influential. And, and actually, you know, women would come up to you and shake your hand, which you don't get in a lot of places in this region. But Lebanon, very, very progressive. Yeah, and you talk about going to Jordan and it's like a breath of fresh air mm, because absolutely. the women aren't veiled and there's football and people, men eat you know, ice cream. and Yeah, but I was, I was quite surprised that even in Saudi Arabia, there are, there are some really progressive cities that I was not expecting. Jeddah, you know, there's a McDonald's in every corner. It's a bit, it looks a little bit like Miami. And, and you do go and see, you see women in jeans and you see some of the women unveiled. So it's not all, you know, you can't tar whole countries with the same brush. Just, uh, just give us a flavour of uh, Bethlehem Christmas. Um, Bethlehem at Christmas was quite strange. I mean, for me, it was, I sort of put this arbitrary date, but it wasn't arbitrary because I wanted to sort of get there and, and try and make it on time. And I did. I managed to get there in time for Christmas, went to the Church of the Nativity, um, which, you know, draws in pilgrims from around the world. Um, but actually, Bethlehem is like this almost very commercial hub. You know, there's literally people in this holiest of cities selling blow-up Santa Claus and, and snowmen and these really crap hats. You know, it's not... It's, it's very, very theology strange. quite confused then, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a bizarre place. And then that's, I guess, what, what really struck me about this region is... is it, the contrast, it's so stark. Um, and you'll have peace and prosperity hand in hand with death and destruction round the corner. And, and that's what you see. You, know, you, you, you leave Iraq and you're suddenly in the Gulf where you're faced with these mega cities, Kuwait, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, um, very, very different. And then suddenly you go over the border again into Oman and you're, it's as if you're transported back to the you know, Middle Ages. Is it possible to do this trip and finish being optimistic for the future? Because it is, I mean, as you have outlined, not just the you meet the ordinary people, but obviously you're aware of ISIS and the, is it the Nusra Front that you... The Nusra Front, there's uh, so many armed groups. Yeah. You know, the, and it's such a disputed area. Can you be an optimist? I came out confused. I came out probably with more questions than I went in. Um, I f finished my journey in Lebanon, but the final hurdle was going through Syria. So I travelled through Western Syria, where the revolution began, um, going to cities like Damascus, you know. And when you when you're face to face with these all these different groups, and you speak to people, and you discover all of people, you know, these different agendas, all the outside influences that are going on, it's hard not to think, wow, this is will this ever end? But then the sense of hope that comes out of it is also quite remarkable. I went to Palmyra. You know, it was, for me, I wanted to go and see these ancient ruins and that I'd heard that were, had been destroyed by ISIS. And of course, huge parts of it have, but actually, luckily, a large part remains. But I actually met this guy there whose father had been killed. He was the, he was the director of antiquities. His father had been killed by ISIS because he'd refused to tell them where the antiquities were being hidden. And he, you know, defended his heritage to the death. And, and yet his son, who'd been, you know, who'd witnessed this this horrific murder. I, you know, I thought that all that he would want is, is revenge and retribution. But actually, when I spoke to him, he said, you know, I've already forgiven the people that have done that because if I don't, then there will never be any peace for Syria. And that was something quite powerful to to, to listen to. 
I tell you, the, I, on a completely other end of the scale, I had no idea camels cost so much. Do you you come across one where um, somebody sold a camel for like four million quid? Yeah, it's they just, take it very seriously. This, how good is this camel? It's four million against like four houses worth of camel. <laughs> camel racing is is big business, and uh, it's all robotic now. They get these robots and they race the camels, and it, it's huge. Yeah. Robot camels, robot no robotic jockeys. Oh, robotic. sitting on the camels. Oh, wow. Sadly, I know just Anna and Dan getting it. As soon as, you, as, soon as Matt, fact in there. As soon as oh, Matt was talking about the price of camels, thinking, well, we, it, mate. We, have a, we have a thing in the book that there was a beauty contest this year. Camel, yeah. they have oh, beauty they camel but contest. They, the problem is, people, some people cheat and they actually put Botox in their camels. Yeah, lips. not allowed, is it? Yeah, so they're disqualified for Botox uh, <laughs> at this year's. Was so it, they look better with Botox. Is well, that? yeah, camel beauty is, is a big deal. <laughs> camels look better with Botox. <laughs> In the Venn diagram of areas that cross over between Book of the Year and Arabia, it's very, very small, but it's the price of camels and how much Botox uh, is done. Do you know where you're going next, Leveson? I mean, do you... Um... I'm well. I'm currently on tour, speaking about this 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 um, journey, um, and then I'll be plotting a new journey very soon. I would imagine. Where to? Don't know yet. Yeah. <laughs> where would you like to go? I need a holiday first. I need a beach. Any recommendations? Oh, okay. Welcome. All right. Okay. Well, Worthing <laughs> Beach is quite nice. You could go there. Uh, before we finish, uh, let's get Anna and Dan to uh, to chip in with a couple more. Uh, fact from the, the book of you. You have plenty of time to think about it. Anna looks poised and ready to go. No, I actually just wanted to mention something in the book. So our book is a lot of funny stuff, but just you were saying about hope. Is there a reason for hope in these places? And that's what we try to look for. And one of the stories I really liked was, I think it's under refugees in our book, um, that in the big Rohingya refugee camp, uh, suddenly these little hand-cranked Ferris wheels started popping up and journalists aren't sure who made them, but some of these refugee adults have made these Ferris wheels and they're putting their kids on it and they're cranking them round. And you can see pictures of them. And it's, I don't know, it's that kind of tiny thing where you think, oh, there is some kind of salvation there mm. somewhere. Yeah, mine's, uh, again, going to lower the tone now. Um, <laughs> my favourite fact from the book, I think, is that um, there was a grand slam for judo in Dusseldorf this year, um, but the two finalists in it fought so badly, they both came second. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it was so crap. You know, they're on the podium on their own with an empty number one spot. Yeah, yeah. That's very good. I like that. Oh, Anna's poised with one more. Well, my actual, my actual fun uh, favourite fact from the book is uh, about Boris Johnson, and it's that Boris Johnson's daddy's mummy's mummy's daddy's 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 mummy's mummy is a syphilitic mummy, and it's this ancient mummy that they found, uh, which had syphilis at the time. It's related to Boris. And Anna sat you, for a you whole sure you day. Just, you haven't made that up. <laughs> I made it up. Sat for a whole day and did the genealogy and worked back to get the daddy's mummy's mummies. It took oh, you forever. Tracing that family tree was a nightmare, but worth it. Uh, book of the Year is from the people that bring you no such thing as a fish. It's the book of the year for 2018. And Leveson Wood's book is Arabia, A Journey Through the Heart of the Middle East. Thank you very much, Dee, for coming in. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you. much. Just time, because we're running out of time. On yes, this, we are. Obviously, it's very, you know, the tape is running out. Yes, we've, we've only got so much of this um, thing. We have got a big artist next time. Yeah, we The do. one and only Ian Rankin. Oh, so fans of me just going, oh, Ian, tell us why you're so great for an hour. Listen on yes. to a great podcast of me going, tell us again, Ian, why you're just so fabulous. I love all of your stuff. You've got a few days to think up some better questions. Yeah, I better have, yeah. If you want to get in touch... And send us a better question than that <laughs> for Ian Rankin. It's books of the year at yahoo.com. Yahoo! And you can tweet us at books of the year. Thank you for listening. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.